Punjab Pinks. You are listening to Behind the Lens. Now, because you you have direct. And what was that, Brian? Yes, folks, this is Behind the Lens. And who knows what Brian is doing in the sound booth today? He's he's just all verklempt over the fact that we are getting closer and closer to Rogue One. But for those of you just tuning in, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with producers, directors, writers, actors, composers, cinematographers, choreographers, distributors, um, classic film legends. We're here every Monday, 11 11 o'clock a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Adrenaline Radio and also AdviceRadio.com. And if you miss us live, you can catch us 24-7. Every show is archived as a podcast available on my website, MovieSharkDeBlore.com, on the Adrenaline Radio website. Uh, A few other choice places, and every Tuesday we are on iTunes Plus. Hang in there because we're shooting, uh, we shoot every show with a two camera and a post-production video, which is generally out somewhere 10 days after, after the show, depending on how fast, uh, the mail or FedEx can get it to our lovely editor, Lydia, on the East Coast, and she can get it, uh, all put together and, and out for us. But, glad you're listening. Tell your friends. Uh, and remember, if you go to iTunes, like, comment, subscribe. But then, we love a live audience. So welcome to Behind the Lens. What are you doing in there today, Brian? Uh, well, I figured out what happened at the beginning of the show. Not that anyone's going to hear it because it'll be edited out. But Well, if anybody, people listening live. Yes, for the live audience, uh, someone hit shuffle on my playlist. Oh. So that's what was going on. So Because I was looking at it like, why did it jump to, uh, to another thing that I had? Yeah, I was going to say, that jumped way up. Yeah, so it's fixed now. No, oh, well, that that's a good thing to know, and you know, for those of us who, uh, for those of you who tried to listen in last week, again, we had a we had a cyber attack on the radio station, uh, on the website and the streaming functions uh, that what appeared to be Islamic terrorist. So we were not out live. I don't even know when the station came back up live last week, but everything is working. It is all A-OK. Firewalls are in place. So there should be nothing interrupting our broadcast today unless Brian does something funny with the buttons. Uh, Unless I interrupt it. Unless you interrupt it. Which I want to do. Of course you do. Well, you know, and today I'm very excited with our guest today. Um, I have to say, though, uh, our, one of our guests last week, uh, Malcolm Carter, the writer-director uh, of The Connected Universe, which you can find uh, – currently find available everywhere digitally and on VOD. Amazing, amazing documentary. Malcolm is – he's what has to be described as a humanitarian filmmaker with over, over 455 films to his credit at this point, all about issues and – you know, with Rogue One approaching us and uh, our impending Star Wars countdown, you know, one the, what the connected universe talks about is the force from a mathematical and scientific standpoint. The force that we have heard talked about in Star Wars for the past 40 years, uh, it is a very real, provable mathematical and scientific event. Uh, the documentary is fabulous, and I can't encourage all, if you want to hear a really fascinating discussion, Check us out on our show from last week on iTunes, my website, or some other places. Uh, and if you can, see The Connected Universe because it is absolutely fabulous. But today, we've got, we've got some fabulous stuff today. Um, I'm very excited with our first caller today. Uh, filmmaker, writer, director, producer, and actor Chris Cardone. Chris, many of our regular listeners will remember, was with us back in May uh, when his film, Stevie D, was on the festival circuit. Well, Stevie D has a distribution deal. It opens in Limited in Los Angeles on Friday. is available next week on VOD. And Chris is back here today to talk about the continuation of his journey and the making of Stevie D. Uh, and then at 11.30 or so, right around there, we've got another filmmaker, writer-director, Christopher Boone, who has this really, it is a charming little gem called Sense with some breakout young actresses, uh, and it's told from the perspective of, it's set in the world of adolescent teen girls, Uh, and it involves math as well. 
So I can't wait to talk to Chris. I mean, he made Chris number two. He made the film essentially with his daughter in mind. So I want to find out how a dad gets into the mindset of his 12-year-old daughter. I don't think mine ever did. Thank God. But as a but right now, I think it's time for Brian's favorite part of the show. As he nods. The Star Wars Countdown. We've a mission for you. Ready? Fade that out. All right, there it is. It's here. It, I just I don't open up the uh, tab here. I have it bookmarked when Rogue One was going to come out. And if you've been following the program, uh, if you're new to the to the to the show, uh, we do look at the Star Wars countdown. We do both films, and we used to start off with Episode Eight, and we switched over when when we got to ninety days. We've actually been doing this countdown about six six seven months now. Yeah, yeah. So we were like at the two hundred day mark watching this calendar go down and if you go back to the podcast which you should because they're timeless programs they're not really tied into any holiday or anything no go check out any of the podcasts you'll hear me talking about this but finally rogue one a star wars story opens up in 10 days 12 hours 52 minutes and as soon as i'm done speaking this sentence 48 seconds to go (laughs) it's here it's full-blown here we've seen all the merchandise come out uh with nissan with uh, Gillette, I showed yes. the trailer earlier. You saw that. I, I had not seen the Gillette merchandise. Brian enlightened me on that. We have anxiously been awaiting this. Brian is is the Disney merchandise team's dream because he pays attention to all of the merchandising for things as well as pricing of DVDs and Blu-rays, which he talks about on his podcast uh, later this afternoon, the Nothing in Particular podcast. Uh, that I think I'm. I think I may be doing that with him today. We're waiting to find out if some publicists timely email me. Yes, uh, Debbie's been a part of the program the last couple of weeks, and uh, it's very. Um, I, I'm grateful that she's a part of it because she has insight to the business. You having done this for long, way longer than I have, and mm-hmm. I appreciate you being here. But we're both Star Wars fans. I think that's what bonded th- us together. Yes, very, very much so. And of course, I don't know if you if you were listening this morning, Brian, but they've already there as of 10 p.m. tonight. They are shutting down portions of Hollywood Boulevard for the premiere, which is going to be Saturday the 10th. Uh, and it looks like it's going to be around the Pantages. And um, is that an exclusive event? It, is that just press only or is that? That's uh, the world premiere. And I haven't seen my invitation to cover it yet. Neither have I. Well, let, me, let me know. Yeah. Well, you know, the last few they've had, you know, they limit... It's it's become all about mommy bloggers and uh, who will get the most hits and clicks as opposed to substance and content. Yeah, well, I mean that that's the trend now, but that'll eventually fade out. Uh, like it will. Does. I've seen it come and go over the years, and I'm the one that's still standing after 29 years. Facebook so. is going to take care of that because they they just recently not that we're going to get into a lot of discussion about this, but Facebook has a tab now where you can report fake news. Yes, so I know certain websites that have. Uh, that generate the clickbait. Mm-hmm, yeah, they will no longer be available on online like that. But if you're not Star Wars, Episode Eight is not clickbait. It's not going to because I, I, the more I look at Rogue One, the more I miss Ray and Finn. But Star Wars Episode Eight comes out in 374 days, 12 hours, and 50 minutes to go for that one. <gasps> So that one, I mean, we're looking at it now, but eventually, sometime next year, we'll be doing well, this. Well, and then never fear, because once Rogue One premieres, on once it opens on the 16th, well, then we can start doing countdowns for the Han Solo standalone. Yes. And some of the others, so. Yeah. There's a Yoda film in, in works also, a young Yoda, the, so, which yeah. I like the Han one, too. Yeah, I, I love both the concepts for both, so I really want to see how that plays out. But, uh, yeah, so we'll be having Star Wars Countdown for some time to come. It'll be next week, too, will be the, the final Rogue One Star Wars Countdown. And then I know we just stay with Episode 8. But I, I'm, I got my ticket for opening day. You I'm, did. I'm going to be there opening day. Well, not opening night, but opening day. Okay, I know. For those of you that listen, you know Brian has been chomping at the bit and dying as to when he could 
uh, get his his advance ticket for Star Wars Rogue uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, and thankfully he finally did because you know his camping out just I don't know the stench of him camping out and not bathing all of these months waiting to get a ticket was just too much, and he didn't have his headphones on, so he didn't hear what I. Just I heard said. everything you said <laughs> about my stench and my my bathing habits. I'll have you know, I I, I wash once a week. Even while you're waiting in line to get your Star Wars tickets. It rained a couple of days ago, so I got my watch. Okay, there. you got your watch. Just walked over to the CVS. But, and we all heard a phone ring. So, I am thrilled to welcome back now the wonderful Chris Cardone. Hello, Chris. Hello, hello. So great to be back. I am so excited and so thrilled. I don't know if Mitch told you. Uh, what was happening the minute he sent me the email about distribution on DVD, and I just sent back a hysterical yes 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 email I was so thrilled that you got a distribution deal on DVD because I just think it is so creative it is so innovative it's so funny and fun thank you thank you so much and, and you also know how hard it is to get these deals uh, you know on any level so um, and I, I really appreciate, you know, your, your, um, your praise and, and, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just a wonderful place to be right now to have this, to have this out for, for everyone to see it, not just on the festival circuit and not just being passed around to, you know, various executives around town. <laughs> yes. Some obviously actually watched it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, obviously, since you got a distribution deal. Who is distributing? Yeah. It's a, a New York-based company called Candy Factory Films. They're, um, they've probably come about in the last five to seven years, and they've, they've been um, kind of slowly building their catalog and, and focusing primarily on digital releases because they, they just feel that that's... You know, a lot of these young companies, I say young being both young in terms of they haven't been around a while and young because they're run by young people. Very much so. They, they feel that, you know, that that is the platform of the future. And, um, you know, that, that's where their focus is. We're fortunate in our case that we, we have a theatrical release happening this Friday at, um, at the Lemley uh, Music Hall in Beverly Hills, which, one, is, you know, for old-fashioned people like, like me and probably you and, and a lot of the film-loving world, it's just great to know that movies can still play in theaters and uh, smaller movies as well. And, yep. uh, and also it's just catching up the, the industry and, and, and media to, to the revolution has not been easy. And it's just a lot, it's a lot easier to get people to notice a film if it's playing in the theater. Uh, these, these new uh, platform releases, um, whether it's day and date, uh, which is both the theater and, and digital at the same time, or whether it's strictly digital, even though a lot of the new voices are in these platforms, it's still very hard to get people to take them seriously, I guess, or, or to, to give them as much, as much weight. So we're lucky that we have, we have both. I mean, I am just absolutely thrilled, absolutely thrilled that you do have distribution on this one and that, that it is, you know, that you do have L.A. at the Lemley Music Hall, which is, I mean, it's a lovely little theater for these little indie gems. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, the the Lemley team in particular, Greg Lemley, has been a supporter of not just art house films, but, but uh, you know, all kinds of, of indie films, you know, that films that um, are looking for academy qualification or some kind of awards qualification or films that just, just need a place to, to be seen. And they, they've been supportive of that uh, in addition to all of the great documentaries and foreign films that they show. Uh, this past week, they've been showing a lot of films that had been released earlier in the year, movies like Miles Ahead with Don Cheadle. And, mm-hmm. and it, that's great for us because our trailer's running, so that's, it's getting hey. exposure to a different audience, you know. And, of course, Miles Ahead is another uh, just amazing film, amazing yeah, film. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Miles Davis fan, and I was, I was um, quite thrilled um, that they picked that point in time. I didn't. I mean, I read it in his autobiography. But I didn't know a lot about really what was going on. I don't think anybody did. But it was just. I just thought it was a particularly interesting perspective, and one that you would expect someone like Don Cheadle to to bring to it. You know, everybody has 
you know, kind of blue in their collection. Like we know what was mm-hmm. happening in the 50s, but but that was interesting because so much was changing. So and yeah, I'm glad that that's getting some some more uh, another look. And as his directorial debut, it just yes. uh, that was unbelievable, unbelievable with the visual look, the tone, the, his use of camera work. You know, just an outstanding job. Yeah. And talk about outstanding job, you know. Stevie D isn't isn't too shabby itself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank now, you. Yeah. Now well, for- we're we're very happy with certainly you know what what we have, um, what we're able to put together. I mean, it's a low budget film, but um, from a production value perspective, and this is you know I think the good thing about the festival run was that it it gave us the confidence to to see how the film how people reacted to the film and and a few different cities in various parts of the country. And, you know, we sold out several shows. We had packed Q&As, and people really, people really bought into it. And that, and that gave us confidence that we were able to pull off, you know, for, for not a lot of money, something that we, we think, you know, reflects a much larger kind of production. And, of course, we have, the, we have the talent in the film, too, which is what I'm particularly grateful for. Last time I was on the show, I had Spencer Garrett. Spencer was on. And he's, you know, fantastic in it, but Kevin Chapman as well. And then, of course, you get Hal Linden. Hal Linden. Come on. (laughs) You get Hal Linden, Chris. How do you get, for your first writing directorial debut, how do you get Hal Linden? It's a good question. You know, I had had been looking for uh, some, in my mind, casting in my mind someone for that part, and I, I wanted somebody... I didn't want the buffle, the the, the um, shuffling, bumbling agent that we've seen kind of a lot of times in in, in TV and film. And I was listening to um, a satellite radio station that, that plays um, a lot of jazz and Sinatra and that kind of thing. And and Hal was actually um, giving uh, he was guest DJing, and I heard his voice, and it was so vibrant and. And he and he was a musician, so he was particularly well spoken too. And I thought, well, he'd be perfect. So I, I just asked my casting directors, uh, Karina Walters and Kevin Mochran. They, they had they had seen him come up for different things, and they thought he's available. Let's <laughs> let's send it to him. And he responded to it, and that and that was how we got him. We only needed him for a day. That helped, you know. That always helps when you can really limit people's times and projects like this because you don't have a lot of money mm-hmm. to, to throw at them. And he just really responded to the character and came in and he worked so hard. I mean, he was—he never put the script down. I have—I have stills of him on set reading his little monologue, you know, over over and over again. And um, he brought wardrobe suggestions. He brought—he had suggestions for what he wanted in his office, uh, what he didn't want in there. I mean, he was—he's I mean, a pro. He's—he's he's why you do this, you know, guys, how, you can now, learn from guys like that. Now, how does that impact you as a director going forward to get input like that from a veteran like Hal Linden? Well, that it's funny. It was actually our first day of shooting too. <laughs> so I was a little bit nervous because <laughs> I, then I, then I remembered I had also be in the scene with him. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's right. I've got to act with Hal as well. Um, it, you know, it, it, again, it was just confidence. It, it really helped. Um, it helped all of us on set. Even, even I remember our DP Paul McElvain, because uh, he has to get a feel for things too. Everybody needs to get their their momentum, get get their rhythm on that first day. And and Hal kind of came in with a lot of energy and a lot of stature, and that just pushed everybody forward. So uh, for that, it helped a lot. He he came to. He came to the screening at the Newport Beach Film Festival, which was wonderfully generous of him, and, and we did a and a there. He's going to do one at the Lemley, too. I don't, I'm not sure which night yet, but it's probably going to be Saturday or Sunday night. Um, and, and it's the first time he had seen the film, and he, you know, he came up to me after. He just says, boy, that came together great. You know? And that was so wonderful for me to hear that. Well, yeah, and you know, I think it's a testament not only to Hal but to your other actors as well. I mean, Spencer's been around forever. Uh, John Apria is just amazing. Yeah, Eric Edelstein has been popping up on all kinds. This has been a, the year yeah. of Eric Edelstein. Yeah, you know, and Eric's done the show a couple times already. Yep. Uh, but I'm glad you mentioned your cinematographer, Paul McElvain, because your cinematography, the look of this film. In there are moments you've got a nuage sensibility, 
but you have your steady stream of comedy. So it's a really interesting juxtaposition that you have designed here. But the look that Paul gives this, be it from, you know, the Hal's character of Max Levine, his his darker office, mm-hmm. to the bright, glorious, sunlit, sun-drenched poolside, white-on-white blue skies of yeah. Stevie D's, you know, played by, as being played by Michael, uh, you know, exterior, plush, you know, mob sun surroundings. It's just a beautiful, beautiful look to the film. Yeah, he did a great job. And again, we didn't have the luxury of picking our locations all over L.A. We had to really be selective. And Paul worked with our production designer, Brandy Mosh, for the, for the interiors that we could control to work with color uh, to make sure that he had some texture that he could work with, and Paul is known in town as being one of the one of the most sought after lighting technicians, or you know, kind of head gaffers. But he likes to shoot in his in his spare time when he's not working. So, you know, he was bringing a lot of different you know perspective to this, having worked on a lot of great projects, and we both loved the look of you know. I mean, it's it's not it's no secret, but the look of Chinatown, you know. Um, mm-hmm which had L.A. at a different period in time, but we just we wanted that kind of that kind of noirish look. But we also had to acknowledge that it was also, there's a lot of funny stuff in here, too. We just didn't have a lot of resources to do tricky shots. We didn't have a dolly. We didn't, we didn't have a crane. We, didn't, we couldn't do anything <laughs> like that. We, had, we were shooting with old, um, old lenses um, from the 60s. So there, there's a little bit of, of, as Paul likes to say, grit, in the, mm-hmm. in the shot, which which helps, I think, because you're shooting digitally and and um, you know it's it, it just may, it gives it more of a film look. I mean, we, we can't do what John Alonzo did in, in in Chinatown, but we can, but we could at least you know come come close to that sort of look. And, mm-hmm. and the noirish thing is something I wanted to have as well because these characters, I mean, there, there's some bad stuff going on. You know, we, we don't want to ignore that, but but there is that I think that undercurrent of of humor and lightness to it. Yeah, and I just think you just you just find that balance perfectly. And I mean, I've been a huge fan of Paul's his lighting work for years. Vanishing on Seventh Street, absolute stunner. Yeah, that's right. If anybody really wants to see a film where light is, I would say it makes up eighty percent. The use of light and the lighting makes up eighty percent of that film. Uh, amazing job, yeah. amazing work there. But then you also, you know, I got to say, Kuda. We didn't get to talk to him uh, back in May uh, about him back in May. But your editor, Bill Sebastian, because of the fact you're playing two roles. Yeah. You know, you're playing the actor, nice guy Michael, and you're playing the douchey Stevie D, right. mafia son. Um, Bill does an, an incredible job because while you're embodying two different characters, the editing is actually done so that we get the sense of two distinct characters. So often when you have one actor, you can see it with the parent trap. You can see it even in some of the Patty Duke episodes because the demeanor and the look isn't changing as much, but the editing is crisp and it's done utilizing different uh, some of Paul's different camera angles. And it just yeah. it, it, there's a little bit of both in there, but the, the the thing I think that you touched on is that what what Bill got uh, Bill's a director too, and he so he he got sort of the the feel of what we were trying to do without I didn't get to sit alongside and, and work with him for the beginning part of that process. He was working on it, and then I came in and gave notes, and and that's just part of low budget filmmaking because you don't I mean time isn't so much the issue. It's just like it's it's more about finding other people their spare time to work and and editing a feature takes a lot of time so he was doing it for us sort of on his downtime from other projects and he got what paul was trying to do we tried to shoot stevie's scenes a little bit differently we tried to use longer lenses partly because we didn't we didn't really want we we didn't want to do a lot of close-ups on stevie Mm -hmm. because then you start to notice too many similarities in the characters right what are you going to do you can't avoid that's the same guy you look good no matter what so yeah yeah so we you know and then bill got that and then mostly i think he he got the rhythm right and he and he and he made you know a lot of the passages just move so quickly i mean it's you know we 
you know, it's it, it, it's a little under two hours. The film, I, I, you know, we probably by design would have would have wanted to be a little bit, you know, under that. But but there's a lot in there. There's a lot of storylines in mm-hmm. there, and we tested and ran, and we asked people and asked people, and the comment that we kept getting back was like, I didn't, I never checked my watch. I didn't know it was how, ha- you know, it just was over. It moved so quickly, and I think that that was really a lot had to do with Bill. Yeah, no, the pacing is perfect, and when it ends. And I think I said this to you before. When it ends, it's like, oh my God, it's over already. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of people asked us, you know, geez, I wanted to hear more about this person or that person and whatnot. I was like, well, we're, you know, we're out of time because you're starting to go into Goodfellas territory if you get <laughs> much longer than that, and it's not that kind of film. And certainly for a first feature, I don't think anyone's got the right to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now you know, you've got the distribution deal. Everybody will, will be able to see Stevie D now. You know, is there a chance that we will see Stevie D come back in a, in a sequel? We're working on Stevie E right now, as a matter of fact. Um, no, I, I, you know, I, I, I think it actually, just because we're now in the, in the, the, the world of uh, what can be done on television, I think, I could see somebody wanting to maybe, you know, th- think about the story in terms of a television episodic. It, it I think it would be, be perfect. It could be funny for that. It could be very funny. I mean, I, I battled the time element in writing the script and executing the script, which was that how do we get this story told before time just starts to really play on people's suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. But I think you could probably, with some very creative people, work around that, you know. In the, in the film, in the, uh, in the television setting. So that's, that's a possibility. I mean, I'm certainly, I'm going in a different direction. I haven't, I haven't done anything with it other than, well, <laughs> I haven't done anything with it. You haven't I've done, done anything with it. Yeah, you know, okay. I, I, you, okay, I is it all, it's else. all a blur. It's all a blur. You've been in a whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, my writing has gone in a different direction, and I'm hoping to, you know, to get a couple of things uh, into production, or I'm hoping to get one one of a couple of things into production next that would be totally different from Stevie D. But but I certainly would welcome the opportunity to revisit it in a different you know different kind of uh, you know different kind of format or or something along those lines. So what is it that you are working on now? Well, I have a two year old, which is what I spend most of my time. Okay, working that on. is what you're working on, the two year old. <laughs> Um, but I've, you know, I, I wrote a, a script with uh, one of the actors in the film, uh, plays one of the FBI agents, Guy Camilleri. He had an idea for a script. I wrote it, and then we collaborated on it. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a much more traditional noir type mm-hmm. of film, and it takes place in sort of the surfing world, if you can believe that, noir surfing story. And I would really like to do that next. I think it would be, I think it would be easy to do just from a just from a production perspective, but I mean, I think it's also something that people are very into right now, that surfing culture, and mm-hmm. it's really just the backdrop for the film, but I would imagine that that would get um, some attention pretty quickly in, in town, even even just from, from talent that would want to do that kind of story. Now, is and that then I've got another story that I'm, I'm working on, which is more of a private eye, also in the, in the noirish world, um, a private eye story, but set in a different set in a different era and with some different kinds of characters that we haven't seen uh, mm-hmm. in in that genre which i think again looking at where we are now in the, in in film world that people want to see different kinds of characters and want to see the same old thing over and over again so i'm hoping that that that'll catch on as well and really it's just a matter of the film getting some this film getting some exposure um, that'll help me get you know, other people interested in my stories. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to, to line up your next project when you, you know, when you, in the indie world, you, you put so much into getting that one thing out there and you just, you're, it's your calling card and you're, you're behind it with all of your effort and time and money. It's not like you've got 10 people behind you working on your next thing yeah. or whatever. I'm hopeful, that'll come hopefully in the future. <laughs> now, <laughs> would these other projects, would they be something for you to direct and star in as well? Or are you going to cut back on the number of hats you're wearing in a production? For me as an actor, and part of that was by design. I mean, I just wanted to think outside my world for a minute. I mean, certainly my world is what I've experienced, but not what I've observed, you know. So what I've observed is certainly in there, but 
Um, I would like to just direct a film next because um, I, I would like to do one with, you know, with a real budget and, <laughs> and you know, kind of a real platform of pre-production and, you know, having your keys involved all the way. I mean, that's the thing with indie film. I mean, you, you only get a couple of weeks to really prep and work with your keys, and it's just, it's just hard to do it, to do it right. Mm-hmm. I think we were lucky. Um, so I'd like to direct something next. I mean, I certainly wouldn't turn down any any acting work, but it's you know it, it for me it's it, it's it's always been about this. What I was able to do with Stevie is always what I wanted to do, which was to write and develop projects. I, I thought that uh, when I came out here as an actor a number of years ago, I thought that I would you know move along more quickly as an actor and be able to do do things a lot more easily, but that didn't happen like you know, like for just about everybody else, it, it doesn't happen that way. You have to adapt and adjust. And yeah, you need to be on the 20 year plan. You need the 20 year plan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Chris, I can't thank you enough for joining me again today. It is always so much fun to have you. And I am just so thrilled that everybody can now laugh and enjoy Stevie D this Friday at the Lemley and Beverly Hills and next Tuesday everywhere on VOD and digital. That's right, correct. Direct TV and Dish and all that other stuff. And um, thank you so much for, for being such a fan and for having me on twice and such a wonderful show. And I'm, I'm, I'm just very grateful. Oh, well, thank you, Chris. And you're going to come back again, right? Uh, I will, definitely. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Ed. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was the wonderful writer, director, actor, Chris Cordone, talking Stevie D. We're going to take a quick, Brian, can we do a quick break? Okay, we're going to do a quick break and hear about Crazy Bitches 2. It's time to get crazy with Crazy Bitches 2. That's right. The team behind Crazy Bitches is back and needs your help to bring Crazy Bitches 2 to life. You can back the film and do your holiday shopping at the same time thanks to fun swag and exciting opportunities that will ship just in time to put under or on your tree. Christmas ornaments turn deadly when mommies behave badly and someone can't take it anymore. So go crazy. Join the Crazy Bee Nation and go to the Indiegogo campaign at igg.me backslash at backslash crazy bs2 crazy b nation crazy bitches too and and what i don't know what brian is doing in there today the shuffles on the shuffles on. i don't know how to turn it off oh good lord <laughs> okay fine well you're back listening to behind the lens i'm debbie elias film critic and creator and host of this glorious program you just heard chris cordone talking about stevie d and now we're going to continue today's battle of the chrises with christopher boone hello christopher hey how are you debbie i'm fine how are you doing Good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I am just thrilled to have you on. I just, your film Sense, and for those listening, it's spelled C-E-N-T-S. It, it, this was so original and so creative with your storyline. We have not seen this particular look getting inside the head of 12 and 13-year-old girls before. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That was one of my goals, so I'm glad it, it worked for you. So, you know, briefly tell our listeners what Sense is about, and then I need an answer to the big question. How did you get inside the head of a 12-year-old girl to come up with this film? Sure. So uh, I guess briefly, uh, Sense is a story of a uh, a crazy smart uh, 12-year-old seventh-grade girl uh, named Sammy um, who uses her gift for mathematics and enlist her frenemies to revamp the school penny drive into a major money-making operation. Um, and all the while, she's also kind of struggling with the relationship with her mom, Angela, who is a nurse practitioner trying to get into medical school for the umpteenth time. And uh, Sammy's also uh, trying to keep her math teacher and mentor, uh, Miss Dyer, at bay, even though Miss Dyer is trying to really uh, nurture Sammy's mathematical gifts and also kind of along the, the right path. Um, so that's, that's essentially the story in a nutshell. Uh, 
answer your other question about how do I, how do I get into the head of a 12-year-old girl? That's a, that's a good question. Because you actually um, have four principal 12-year-old girls here, and each one, I mean, for all the, all the women out there, you know, you know how, how, you know, rapier and how dangerous it is. And frenemies, nobody is a true friend. They are all frenemies for <laughs> one reason or another. Yeah, yeah and, and so I have a daughter, um, and uh, by, when I first thought of this story idea, actually, before I even started working on it, my daughter was much younger. She was, I don't know, probably about eight years old, I guess. And um, being a dad, I had no idea what it would be like for her to, uh, uh, what it was going to be like for her to go through adolescence. And so I started actually doing research on it and was... Uh, shocked and terrified, actually, uh, to learn about some of the stories that were going on with young women um, uh, heading into adolescence and how they were using social media, but also just looks and and other uh, nonverbal forms of communication, but also things that were going on under the radar screen um, when it came to adults not really being aware of how they're treating one another. Uh, So again, that was terrifying as a father, but I thought it would make for a really good uh, story, or at least environment for a story. Um, so I started to work on that, um, and uh, and worked with actually a lot of middle school students on other uh, projects that they were working on, film related projects, and kind of got to know them really well. And just while we were working on those projects, just sat back and observed um, as we went. So that definitely helped with writing the story. Um, and uh, yeah, from doing that research, uh, it, it kind of helped me understand the different aspects of of how these girls would interact with one another. And again, I just thought that would be a fantastic world to set a movie in. Well, and you develop all the characters so extremely well, not just the girls, but also, uh, you know, Sammy's mother, Angela, who is very disinterested and removed from her daughter's life and from her world. And you mentioned the character of Ms. Dyer, who is, I have to say it, Next is the character of Sammy, my favorite character in this film, because she is a teacher who really does care. She is the teacher that everybody remembers from some time in their life. She is the one that is going to make sure that 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 child sees their full potential. And we don't see enough of that portrayed on screen. So, I mean, I applaud you for the character of Miss Dyer. Well, thank you. Um, and and I'd heard stories uh, both before I made the film and then after showing it to some people, too, um, uh, from other women who are now adults that said that um, they, uh, you know, they're now they're engineers or they work in the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math. And they said um, they didn't even consider having uh, pursuing a career in those areas until someone in their lives, usually a teacher or some sort of a mentor, came up to them and asked them if they had ever thought about it and then pushed them as well as encouraged them to, you know, really reach their potential. Um, and so I, I, I thought it would be great to have uh, a character like that in the film, mm-hmm. but also one that wasn't going to take a lot of uh, crap, for lack of a better word, from right. from our main character. So she was going to really hold her... Uh, to whatever arrangements they had made, but she, and she knew that she's going to have to let that that young girl make mistakes, um, but she wasn't going to let her go too far off that path. She's right. going to try to keep her in in line some way. So she's got to make mistakes and learn from them, but she's also going to make sure that she's going to reach that potential and she's going to push her there. And that does lead to to conflict and, and arguments. As far as the character of Angela, um, you know, it, it definitely I think point in their lives in the story as we're telling it, uh, it does seem like she is disconnected from her daughter and they are having this struggle. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like everything that she does is actually because she cares so much about her daughter and she has just forgotten that she isn't actually paying any attention to her. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's just lost track of what's going on in her own daughter's Life. And, and she's told herself that everything that she's doing is for her daughter without realizing that she needs to actually have a relationship with her daughter. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, as parents, I think there are times uh, where we don't realize that we're not paying the closest attention to our kids for whatever reason. Um, and uh, sometimes it's we have good intentions, but um, 
we need to make sure that we're, we're still tuned in. And I think it's a challenge, too. She's a single parent, and uh, I, I tip my hat to all single parents. I, I really do not know how they do it. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to at least show someone who I thought was a strong yet flawed character trying to uh, show her daughter the way in the world and yet, you know, failing at the same time. Um, and I think that makes it a, a more realistic portrayal of that relationship. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I love the fact that you picked math and you picked this idea of, you know, this, this penny campaign that, that the school does, but it essentially is, it boils down to a pyramid scheme and you address that, but you really hone in on, you really hone in on the benefits of math and science and, and intelligence. And quite honestly, I think the timing for sense now being available uh, digitally and on VOD is perfect because of the upcoming major feature, Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. about the three uh, NASA mathematicians and scientists that were female. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to see Hidden Figures. We've actually promoted it on our Facebook page. You and, are um, it's, all, I'm it, embargoed, but all I'll tell you is you are going to love it. Yeah, I, I really can't wait for it. And, and that's the thing is I, I want to see more stories like that. I mean, I think there are and uh, 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 lots of stories, both true and, and, and in my case is obviously fictional, but where we can see characters that we don't typically see in these roles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and I think we just need more of that. And that was one of the things that people had asked me about, you know, why why is Sammy Latina? And so why, I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and so why, why shouldn't she be? Um, and... And then what I realized was when I made that decision, when I was writing, just coming up with the story, um, yes, that would uh, maybe create a, a slightly different dynamic than if she wasn't, but also I didn't necessarily need to delve into it much further. And what, what I appreciate is hearing from audience members who have said, you know, thank you for making this character Hispanic, making her Latina, showing us uh, strong women in these roles, and yet letting them also make mistakes. And and I had one uh, parent actually say to me, and thank you for not having a boy somehow swoop in and save the day. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, I never wanted to have that because I don't feel, that, again, that's true to life. Um, and it wasn't really, it was never the story I wanted to tell. So I appreciate when I hear that kind of feedback, and, and hopefully it does touch people no matter who you are, whether or not you like math, it doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. Hopefully you see something of yourself in some of these characters. And if you have a passion, if you have a gift, that you don't actually hide it, that you try to pursue it and share it with others. Yeah. Now, part of, of a little indie gem like this are a lot of new discoveries. And you really have a new discovery in this film in the form of Julia Flores, who plays Sammy. I absolutely agree. Uh, I felt extremely lucky when I found Julia. In fact, we, we found all of our actresses are local, but we have a, uh, a large uh, film base here in New Mexico mm-hmm. uh, because of our tax incentives. So uh, everyone obviously knows about Breaking Bad, but we're constantly shooting films and TV series here in Albuquerque and Santa Fe and, and all around the state. And as a result of that, we have an amazing talent base when it comes to acting. Um, and so we were able to cast everything locally. We actually found Julia really early in the process before we even did our Kickstarter campaign. Um, we were casting for a teaser that we were going to shoot ahead of that Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't even uh, cast that wide of a net just based on time and resources. And Julia happened to walk in. And wow. uh, I was absolutely floored uh, when she did this small little scene for us. And I thought, I really need to make this movie soon <laughs> so she doesn't age <laughs> out. Um, and so I was lucky that we were actually able to put, pull everything together in time and actually have her play that role. And I think it's a challenging role for her, for any actress, but in many respects, uh, Julia is nothing like that character. In fact, I've had people who worked on the film, uh, especially in post-production, say they were shocked to find out that she's uh, totally different in her nature and demeanor. Obviously, the, the one similarity, and if she was here with us, uh, she would say the same thing, uh, is that she's incredibly intelligent and she likes math. But about other than that, she's uh, she's uh, 180 uh, degrees different from, from the character Sammy. I think that just goes to show the strength of her performance. She's incredibly professional. And I asked a lot of her um, because there are so many scenes where she doesn't get to say anything. And she has to convey uh, through her actions and, and her facial expressions and in her eyes just really what's going on inside of that head of hers. And uh, I, I couldn't be more proud of her performance. And 
um, if she, you know, hopefully will continue to pursue this because I, I think she has a lot to offer. At the same time, she has a lot to offer the world no matter what. So um, uh, I look forward to Julia's future, whatever it may be. Well, you know, she was going to be joining uh, us today, but she has a final exam today. She does, yeah. <laughs> she was all prepared to do it. Her. She was sick last week, and so she had a makeup exam. She apologizes. Uh, oh, uh, no. School, school is much more important, much more Absolutely. important. But, you know, as I'm watching Julia, all I could think about, she so reminds me of Eliza Dushku. Uh, everybody knows Eliza for her role as Faith in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. And she has a lot of that those same ten- tendencies and nuances and and facial expressiveness. And I just think Julia's got a very very bright future ahead of her. And your other girls as well. They just complement each other so beautifully. You've got Lily who plays the character of Katie. You've got Jai who plays Hannah. Very much a Vanessa Hudgens Demi Lovato look going mm-hmm. on. And Claire Carter. I mean just. A really wonderful foursome that you yeah. that you came up with. We were really fortunate um, when when these young actresses came to us, and we saw a lot of kids. Uh, again, it was all local. Um, but once I found these four girls, I was really excited because I feel like they understood the characters really well. Uh, they're all extremely intelligent, so they all came to me with great questions about the characters and trying to understand the story and and where their characters fit into the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the best parts early on was uh, Lily coming to me um, during the shoot and saying, uh, God, this is exactly what seventh grade was like. <laughs> I just, and they're all, very, they're all very close to the age of the characters, too, but they had all at least gone through seventh grade, um, and so it was fresh in their minds. Uh, but it was interesting to hear her say that. I think both good and bad, <laughs> uh, but they really could relate to... Um, to the characters themselves, their motivations, sometimes the confusion of the characters uh-huh. and why they were even doing certain things. And that's one of the weird things I think about this early part of adolescence where you're really trying to figure out your way and you sometimes do things that you don't even realize why you're doing it and it's going to hurt somebody that you actually like, but you're concerned about your own popularity. And one of the things I really wanted to, to look into was just how at that early age we have trouble seeing two inches in front of our faces and we don't understand the consequences of our actions until they circle back on us. And then once they do, uh, whether or not we have the emotional maturity and wherewithal to actually maybe make some different choices um, mm-hmm. as we move forward. And so Sammy has to deal a lot with that. But, yeah, uh, working with Lily and Claire and Jai uh, alongside Julia was just a pleasure. Uh, not only were they fantastic in, in the film, but they were just a lot of fun to be, be around on the set and just brought a lot of life and joy to the set every day. Well, you know, because this is your first feature, Stepping Behind the Camera, um, you know, there's always a learning curve involved with that. And you very keenly brought on Corey Weintraub as your cinematographer. I'm a huge fan of Corey's work as a camera operator and working with Dana Gonzalez with Rick Waugh on Felon. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was thrilled. I was curious to see what Corey would bring as a cinematographer here. And I got to say, the look of the film... It, you've got a very naturalistic look going on. Was this something that, that you and Corey decided on early on? How did you approach the film? Once you had your casting in place, you had your story in place, how did you approach this from a technical standpoint? Yeah, I, I really wanted to work with Corey for a while. He's here locally, but he's shot on a lot of things, both here and in California and around the country. So I felt really lucky that he wanted to come on board to work on this project. Um, and a lot of the things that I've seen of his that I like um, are actually darker in nature. Mm-hmm. And so I, we had a lot of really candid conversations about what I was looking for in terms of uh, look and feel and and to your point, a uh, really naturalistic style is what I wanted. Um, I really like films that are shot on the shoulder and really put you in the place of the characters so you feel like you're a part of their world. It's so that when we decided to, say, pull back and have a really composed shot or we really thought carefully about uh, how we we're going to move the character if it wasn't on the shoulder, um, I, that, that's where I got really excited working with Corey because he could bring a lot of that to the table. Um, and, again, I'd only had the uh, ability to do short films of my own, mm-hmm. but uh, being able to work on this uh, as a full feature and tell the story and really think 
a lot about how the cinematography was going to play into that story. It was a lot of fun, um, again, working with Corey. And what was great about uh, Corey as well was we actually sat down for a full week and we storyboarded the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And Corey loves to draw. So we literally just sat at a booth uh, at a local restaurant every day, all day, and just, uh, and just uh, drew out the entire story. I had shot lists. Um, but I'm no artist. So it was great to do that. And because we're in the film and short uh, schedule, that those storyboards were invaluable because we were always running and gunning and we could always just pull out that binder and say, okay, this is what we got to get covered today. And Corey totally saved me on one day. We actually um, had uh, a fire alarm go off of the school where we were shooting because uh, there was a brush fire nearby and it was causing smoke uh, coming wow. up through some school vents. And so we were kicked out of the building for a full hour after lunch. And when we came back in, we had less than an hour to shoot one of our pivotal scenes in the cafeteria, including, uh, I guess, a small stunt, if you will. Uh, and I had no idea how we were going to get it done. And Corey just stepped in and said, I got it. I think this is what we need to do. We threw three cameras at it. He walked me through how he thought we would get the coverage. Wow. He said, you just work with the talent and I'll make sure you get what you need. And we were off to the races. And then with my editor and my post-production sound team, uh, it's one of my favorite scenes in the film, and I still can't believe we actually got it done. So, again, uh, huge kudos to Corey and super talented. I can't wait to work with him again. I mean, he he truly is. He is He's one of the best guys out there. And, you know, as I said, I know his work from working with Dana and, and Rick and mm-hmm. – you know, with because I know Felon was a very very tough shoot with close quarters and and cramping uh, and trying to get some claustrophobic and some really specific POV angles. So I was thrilled to see that here he got to keep it natural, but he got to open up the framing. Yeah, the two of you really opened up the frame. Yeah, Corey's always open uh, for challenges. He, he, he always, always wants to push himself. Um, I think he is incredibly talented. He also works with a lot of local filmmakers here, like Scotty Molliner and, um, and, uh, and Hannah McPherson, who's now out in L.A. as well. He's a close collaborator with the two of them. And, uh, yeah, I really don't think there's anything Corey can't do. And um, I, I'm just really looking forward to seeing more and more of his work. So, again, I'm a huge supporter of his. And um, he was just fantastic to work with, uh, great on set. Um, yeah just a really talented guy. So now what did you take away from the making of sense that you will now take with you into your next directorial project? That's a great question. Um, I learned a lot of lessons, made a lot of mistakes. Um, one of the things I really want, was hoping would come out of this was actually that it would uh, make me a better screenwriter. Mm-hmm. I think of myself as a screenwriter first and then a director second. And uh, what was interesting was it actually made it harder <laughs> to write my next script. And I think initially that was because um, I knew the things that I wanted to do better. And uh, I kept pushing myself in that next script to make sure that it was better. Um, but I also had to realize that uh, it, it can't ever be perfect and it never will be. And you know, the last rewrite the final edit of the film. So until I get there in the next film, I'll still be rewriting the script. Um, so I think that, that in and of itself was a, a big lesson to learn. Um, but also just having one under my belt and knowing mm-hmm. that uh, finding the right team of actors and crew is extremely important and relying on their talents and asking for their opinions all along the way. And a great idea can come from anywhere and making sure to keep my eyes and ears open for those great ideas um, and making sure it's happened to people's passion uh, for the project because uh, there's a big reason I don't put my name on the front of the film and I don't have a, a film by credit uh, because I think that's kind of, I always thought that's kind of ludicrous. So many people mm-hmm. actually make the film. Um, I happen to be the writer and I happen to be the director and one of the producers. Yes, it's, I have a vision, but uh, I need everybody to get on board with that vision and share in that vision. So it's all of our vision that actually makes it up on the screen itself. Um, so those are the things that I think I, I took away from this project. I'm excited to hopefully get to make another film in the future. Um, it's uh, hopefully going to be a little bit funnier uh, than this one. I wanted to do drama first because I thought that's a little bit easier, but I, I'm actually more naturally drawn towards writing uh, dramatic comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd like to see a little bit more laughter in the audience the next time out. <laughs> and I'll probably be doing something a little bit more personal as well as it relates to my own life and my own family, um, trying to get really specific in order to tap into the universal. Well, right now... Sense is available. It's on every digital platform, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Vimeo, VHS, Xbox, 
and every VOD platform out there with everybody, Time Warner, Cox, the whole shebang. So there's no excuse for everybody not to spend a few of their own pennies to uh, take a look at Sense. Well, thanks so much, Debbie. I that. I mean, this is, I, I can't recommend it. It's, it's a great family film also. This is one that's, everybody that's in the family hope. can watch this. Yeah, that's what we hope, too. When we've had screenings, uh, I would get uh, emails and, and after the fact from, from mothers who watched it with their daughters and uh, said, we had a long conversation in the car about your movie, but then also things that are going on in school right now that I had no idea about. Mm-hmm. And uh, your movie kind of opened the door to that. And we've actually had special screenings with different organizations focused on, uh, on girls of this age. We've worked with uh, Girl Scouts uh, and different Girl Scout councils around the country mm-hmm. um, to have special screenings. And then they do uh, workshops after the film with some discussion guides that we've done for them. Um, so I really do hope that uh, more families sit down uh, and take some time to watch it. And then I hope it provokes uh, some good dialogue uh, and conversation. Now, is the film still available? Are you still partnered up with Tug for special screenings? We are. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So if any of your listeners are part of an organization or a school um, that wants to actually have a screening or license the film for their institution, they can do that through Tug Educational. Um, and, uh, and if somebody actually loves the film so much and they want to see it in the theater, you can still program it in the theater if mm-hmm. you're so inclined as well. So we've used Tug for theatrical screenings as we've taken it out on the road. Um, but yes, uh, it's definitely available and, and will be for the foreseeable future. You know, and with all these holiday vacations coming up, you know, parents want to ki- know where their kids are, want to get things together, kids want to get together. It's a perfect opportunity to put together your own screening. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you don't want to do it in a theater, again, you can license it. And essentially, it's anywhere that you can actually screen the film. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it can be a school, a rec center, community center, a church, or a private home. Uh, but again, just have to get that license through Tug Educational. And, and again, we've had it screened in pretty much all of those environments. So it's, it's been a been interesting and educational as well to, to be able to offer the film that way. And again, I'm excited for to share the film that way as much as possible. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of Tug, and it's opened up a whole lot. Uh, it's opened up a lot of theatrical experiences for people and films that might not have had that that opportunity. Yeah, and, and again, we've been able to take it out and do little small tours of the Northeast, and then just before our VOD launch, we were in a, a handful of different cities there, too. And, you know, I love the theatrical experience. I always knew this film was mainly going to be seen through VOD mm-hmm. on iPads, uh, and, 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 I, and I welcome that. But being able to actually screen it in a theater with an audience and sometimes have discussions afterwards was really wonderful. There's nothing better. Now, I, I want to ask you, before, before we go, I want to ask you, are you still writing for No Film School? Yes, I am. Uh, I'm a regular contributor for the site. I don't write as much as I really want to, uh, but I do. And so for anyone who's interested in the making of, uh, of Sense, um, they can go to our website, sensethemovie.com, click on the making of link, and I wrote a dozen posts on No Film School going all the way back to before we did our Kickstarter, all the way through this VOD distribution. Um, and uh, No Film School has just been a great outlet to, to write for. I primarily write about screenwriting, but it's also been really uh, helpful to be able to share my own story with uh, other filmmakers. Hopefully I can share lessons that they can take and use for their own projects. Uh, no Film School is one of my favorite sites. It, it has been for years. Yeah, it's a great community, and uh, they're doing an excellent, fantastic job. We have a, an amazing team that came on board earlier this year to take on the, the editing roles. Uh, Liz Nord and Emily uh, Buter are doing a fantastic job there. So I just, again, feel fortunate that I could get to contribute to them when I write about screen narrating and my own film projects. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on Behind the Lens today. I hope you'll come back and we can do a whole screenwriting discussion one day. That would be great. Thanks so much, Debbie. I appreciate you taking the time to to have me on. Oh, my pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you again, Chris. All right. We'll do that. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Christopher Boone concluding our Battle of the Chris's today, talking about his film, Sense. Great family film, you know, strong, young, young teenage girl performances, great story for parents, for kids, and Chris really taps into something we haven't seen. And I know Brian is looking at me because we have, what, 22 seconds left in today's show. 
So is that correct, Brian? He's, he's nodding. He's just not, I don't know what Brian's doing today. He's probably playing with the shuffle button back there. But that is all the time we have today. We'll be back again right here next week. Next week, who do we have next week? We have Sheldon Raynan uh, talking about The Killing of America. It's an older film. It's being re-released. Uh, fascinating. He'll be here for the whole show with us. So tune in, log on next week. Like, comment, subscribe on iTunes. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.